Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maitri's popular program. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac, president of Maitri. We're a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite experts from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In this session, originally recorded on December 3rd, 2020, we asked Mary Rowe to share her five good ideas for the nonprofit sector to build a city now and in the wake of a global pandemic. Now, while many of you are dialing in from across Canada, I'm speaking to you from Toronto, and I'd like to begin today's session by acknowledging the land where we live and work and recognizing our responsibilities and relationships where we are. As we are meeting and connecting virtually, I encourage you to acknowledge the place you occupy. I am and Maitri is on the historical territory of the Huron-Wendat, Batoon, Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the New Credit Indigenous Peoples. This territory is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. Today, we're talking about cities and communities. Cities are the fundamental building block of contemporary society. Certainly in Canada, where almost 90% of our population lives in a community of 5,000 or more. COVID-19, the pandemic, and the various measures government has taken to cope with it is having a dramatic impact on the future of urban life and will potentially alter fundamentally how we plan, design, manage, and govern cities in the future. The nonprofit sector will play an important role in this process. In today's session, Mary Rowe, President and CEO of the Canadian Urban Institute and host of City Talk Canada, will talk about her five good ideas for the nonprofit sector to help build a city now and in the wake of the pandemic. Mary is no stranger to how cities recover from disasters. She's worked in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and New York City during and after Hurricane Sandy. And of course, Mary is also a very good friend of the foundation. For several years, she worked closely with Maitri Chair Alan Broadbent on Ideas That Matter, a convening and publishing program focused on the core areas of Jane Jacobs' work, cities, economies, and values. Her work continues to be focused on how cities enable self-organization, cultivate innovation, and build social, economic, environmental, and cultural resilience. For Mary's full bio and details about today's session, please download the handout. I think Aretta has put the link in the chat box. On the handout, you will also find today's five good ideas and resources as recommended by Mary. So without further ado, thank you, Mary, for joining us, and over to you. Thanks, Liz. Well, I'm delighted to be here with my colleagues from Maitri. I, I know we're not supposed to say we're old colleagues, but uh, I can qualify that I am an old colleague and uh, have been appreciative of Maitri's steadfast advocacy and support and through your chair, Alan Broadbent, really fearless leadership about why cities are so critically important to the country. Um, and when Alan started this about 30 years ago, you know, it was hard to have these conversations because I don't think we as a country recognized although he did, um, how completely central the urban form the city is to the economic and social and innovation capacity of the country. And uh, we, you know, I have this story I always tell about, um, we still promote uh, Canada internationally as a, a tourist destination. And we do that with pictures of mountains and lakes and 
ocean fronts and we forget to say what you just said, which is that 90% of the country are choosing to live in urban areas and a vast majority of the country live within an hour of the US border in urban environments. So um, this, is a big, this is a big reality for us and it's also a big challenge and I'm very pleased to come and talk to you and give you what I think are five good ideas. Um, I just wanna say at the outset that there's no shortage of good ideas. And I'm hopeful that lots of people that are tuning in today are gonna volley those into the chat uh, uh, or ask questions about them. And this conversation should just be the beginning, not the end, obviously. Um, I don't, I'm not a fan of oracles and icons. I don't think there's any magic bullet here. And I don't, and I'm a, I'm a, uh, a distruster of expertise actually. So I think we really need to learn from each other and all of you that are involved in civil society, advocacy, service delivery, all the things that you do on the ground are the really key things that inform us about what we're to learn uh, through this COVID experience and how cities will remake themselves. So um, obviously this is a, the, the image of the virus and I need to maybe get a slide that shows Canada more in the center, but it's a global phenomenon. And I just wanna remind people of some basics, which is that this is just a, a lot of people will be familiar with this notion because I've talked about it for a number of years. This is the premise I work from. Cities are about enabling self-organization. Each of us is one of these dots. Our organizations is one of these dots. Our neighborhood, our district is one of these dots. And what you want is a web of interconnectivity that allows you and I to meet our needs and realize our aspirations in the context of a dwelling where we live in a congregate way, in an interdependent way. Uh, and of course, during COVID, this conversation is becoming more and more questionable because of the risks associated with this kind of connection and connectivity, but we are adapting obviously. And I think that's part of the story, the COVID story is that we're not going to abandon this kind of collective interaction. What we're going to do is find different ways to do it, safer ways to do it and more adaptive ways to do it, depending on what the challenge is. And when you think about where these patterns come from, you know, this notion of for years, you know, we still deal with people who think that cities are somehow unnatural. But in fact, cities are a, a fundamentally organic, very natural phenomenon. Probably um, humanity's greatest uh, uh, creation are these kinds of network systems that we call a city. And part of what we need to spend our time doing through this experience is really look carefully at what's going on and understand how are we going to self-organize our way? What are the enabling conditions that allow us to realize a different kind of future? Not just go back to what was, Lots of people may think that's what we wanna do, but I think most of us agree, nope, that's not what we wanna do. We wanna be able to move forward in whatever constructive way we can. And um, a lot of people know that my experience was uh, confirmed, I suppose, by five years of practical, practical immersion, literally in New Orleans. Uh, I had had exposure to various ideas through Alan and the early works at Ideas That Matter uh, with Jane Jacobs about self-organization. But then I found myself in New Orleans mid-career after Katrina, and this is what happened. And what's interesting is that when a deluge like this happens, now of course we're having this all over the world, different kind of deluge, but this kind of shock, what it did, this kind of challenge, is it basically underscored these self-organizing elements that are really at the core of our communities. And they are who you serve and who I anticipate you would say you enable in the work that you do in your organization. And this kind of hyper-local, this is where resilience lives are people like this, who this is very very soon after Katrina, this is maybe uh, eight months, it's in the early 206. You can see there's still debris on the street. There's still actually water, believe it or not, in certain neighborhoods. And this is a homeowner, a business owner actually, um, Musa Nveda, who I just saw last year, um, still there, who said, thanks very much, but we're still here, you bastards. I mean, this is what we have to catalyze. And in New Orleans, what I saw was 
hyper, hyper granular self-organizing, like what you just saw on the side of that shop, but also these kinds of initiatives. This was a, a network of 17 or 18, basically home-based recovery centers started by regular folks who really didn't have any access to any other resources and decided they would self-organize and they created beacons of hope. And they had, you can see these people had a bit of a sense of humor, they called it Cafe Katrina, but it became basically a mobilization of what lots of parts of Canada would know as a mutual aid society, that kind of thing. And people have, can, be, can be patronizing about these solutions, but I really think we've got to pay special attention because we see it surfacing again through COVID. And I always uh, like to quote this because it keeps all my New York Times readers happy to know that David Brooks, who would generally be seen, I think, as a conservative uh, to the slightly to the right center journalist saying during Katrina and after saying, look, folks, this is about the locals. Let's listen. And during that period, I literally scribbled this on a napkin. A lot of us know what this is like. You have a napkin moment, serviette moment. You And this is what I saw happening in New Orleans is that people were gathering hyper-locally, figuring out problem solving, mutually supporting one another to try to figure out how we were gonna muck out of this. And then they started to reach out beyond their own borders or their own interests to others to supplement their strategy. And that's what we're confronted with now is that I'm going to talk to you specifically about the kinds of things that the Canadian Urban Institute is experiencing and where we've decided to focus. But each of you has your own story about if you take things down to the basic building block, what are you seeing in terms of the signs of resilience and how can you in your capacity enable that so that we then have many, many, many instances of this kind of granular uh, innovation and responsiveness to this extraordinary challenge that we're all facing. So we started something called Bring Back Main Street, which is something that every Canadian, every community seems to understand, even if their Main Street doesn't look like this. Their Main Street may be a shopping mall, it may be a Four Corners, it may be a, a, an abandoned warehouse where a lot of people were going. It may have been less formal, it doesn't always have to look like this, but this is of course what we're facing, is that more and more of these places are lacking in traffic, Just pedestrian traffic, and uh, lots of people are spending their money and their time online, purchasing online, um, and or maybe they're going to large stores, and uh, it means that these neighborhoods have an extraordinary challenge. And in fact, you know, when, when everybody was running out of toilet paper at the beginning of wave one, the people that had toilet paper in my neighborhood was the little corner grocery here, Perry. He had toilet paper. Uh, lots of other big shops didn't. So there's something about allowing ourselves to focus at the local scale and really pay attention to what needs to be resourced there. So we've started Bring Back Main Street. You can see it because we've been at it for several months. You know, they're the history of the, they're the, the core of the economy. And they're also the hearts of a neighborhood because it's not just shops that are on your main street. It's your library, it's your health center. And I think part of what we need to talk about is how do we imagine a main street for the future? What is that going to look like to us? And do we need to reinvest in it differently, put other amenities there, other services? Because the other thing is there are people that live on the street. There are people that live above the street. There are people that uh, come from a few blocks away to get to the street. So it, it affects every aspect of urban life if we think about concentrating on the gathering place, the main street. We're joining this with a second piece. And again, I'm interested in what your perspectives are going to be as you report to me what you're observing in your communities. In parallel with main streets being in jeopardy. And you know, I, I had said before, I quoted uh, Eric Kleinenberg early in the pandemic. He had said, if you, have, if you don't know Eric, go and Google Eric Kleinenberg heat wave. He wrote a really smart, he wrote a PhD a dissertation uh, in the 90s, basically identifying why, which neighborhoods in Chicago had fared well and which hadn't 
during the, the uh, during a sudden heat event that killed some people and didn't kill others. And why was that? And he was able to determine that there were pre-existing conditions in the way in which those neighborhoods were actually planned and designed where people that had more access and familiarity with their neighbors and services around them did a, made out okay. And those that were isolated didn't. And we're seeing exactly this happening during COVID. When I heard uh, Liz do the land acknowledgement on City Talk, we do a land acknowledgement as well. But part of what we have to acknowledge, and those of us that are engaged in city building, is that urbanism has been a perpetuator of exclusion, uh, colonial practices, ways in which we have created neighborhoods that aren't equitable and conditions that don't deliver equitable results. So now I feel we're at a point where we have to say, you know what, no more excuses. Like people have maybe had a, known this, but did we actually change the way we were designing, change the way we were resourcing and engage communities directly in creating the communities that they know, they know best what they need. So the Main Street dilemma was really a, a, a precondition to COVID and COVID has acted like a particle accelerator which is what Eric Kleinenberg coined that heat wave to be. It was a particle accelerator for every uh, pre-existing condition. And we're now, all of, us, all of us know this, that COVID is a, a particle accelerator. So main streets were languishing. Now we have a moment. Same with downtowns, right? We had very vibrant downtowns or cores, as we're saying we did, but there were challenges to those places because there was, there was, it was dominated by a single use. And, did it have the kinds of conditions to uh, foster diversity and other kinds of experience and, and welcoming to diverse uses and diverse users? Maybe not. So we have some bleak statistics about this. This is really a serious thing though, folks. What's going on in the cities across the country? We're working with the top six or not the top six, we're working with six of the largest in the country about what's happening to their downtowns. And of course, part of, remember, part of Main Street is it attracts people and you have Main Streets and downtowns. But it also means that you have eyes on the street, a good Jane Jacobs adage, which means you have public safety and you have more and more people engaged in the life, in the lifeblood and how a street is so important to the structure and the functioning of any city and any community. So bring back Main Street has now been partnered with Restore the Core so that we can come to terms with what are the elements that have that we need to be turning our attention to. And again, civil society and not-for-profits have to be central to the rebuilding of this kind of infrastructure. I mean, social infrastructure and hard infrastructure. Certainly my experience in New Orleans and in New York was that, that the leadership for these things comes out of civil society voices who often have the capacity and perspective that a government may not, because government is pretty busy just trying to solve the particular problems in front of them. Um, there are ripple effects to this, obviously, transit's in trouble. And yet we know that essential workers have been completely dependent on the maintenance of transit to get to work. And I, I'm hoping one of the stories that's gonna come out of this is, it's remarkable to me that we managed to keep transit operating in Canada. When the transit systems across this country are dependent on fare box, fewer people were taking it. So I really wanna stress that first thing in my good idea is that we have to look local and extract from the local what you understand to be working. We too often don't do that in Canada particularly. People sit uh, far away, 30,000 feet away and say, here is the solution, I've got the solution. We need to go local and think local and learn local and then see what we can derive local to take to other, to, that can then be uh, uh, learned from and potentially copied or uh, adapted for other circumstances. The second good idea that I've got is that uh, I said here provocatively, it's time to start sleeping with your enemies. Well, as you can see, this picture would live up to that. This is 
part of what, again, I witnessed in New Orleans, total on the ground engagement in hope, helping families cope. And so this, these, these folks are actually, they are all bloggers. And there was a, this is 2005. Some of you are too young. You weren't working it 15 years ago, but I was. And what we saw was the emergence of social media. That's, this is early days. Didn't have what you have now, but it was early days. And there was a huge constituency of people all around the country in the US that were actually taking to, the, to the, a blogging platform to try to share information and start this network of problem solving online. And it was every kind of person. And I snapped this shot because they would have blogging conferences. I mean, really, a blogging conference, go figure. A whole bunch of people sitting behind monitors, you know, tapping to each other. But they would then finish their conference, uh, finish their online stuff, and then they would pack up and head out to a neighborhood and help gut a house. And you can see that's a FEMA trailer. And you can see these folks are um, not necessarily the people that you would necessarily uh, uh, gravitate to to understand that they would be engaged in this way. And sadly, on the other side of this picture frame were two Marines who were about to, couldn't have been straighter than you can, they just were very straight guys. And they were about to go out and be deployed to Iraq. And we were all in those homes together, mucking those homes out. So I can imagine each of you has your own anecdote about this about how during an extraordinary period like we're going through now, that you do end up reaching across the aisle, you reach across the street, you reach into people that are doing things that aren't familiar with what you're doing. And one of the questions I've got is, is that going to morph into other kinds of collaboration? We do it in a pinch because we have to, but are we going to then concretize that and suddenly find ourselves, for instance, designing our spaces differently for more co-use, um, having more, kinds of uh, explicit collaborations so that you can go to a place uh, where you thought you might have gotten one service, but in fact, now you're going to get a whole bunch of other services. This notion of how do you actually um, uh, allow your, border, your borders to be porous, your boundaries to be porous, both geographically, but also um, in terms of your mission. And I bet that's a controversial conversation, but I'm interested to have it with you. The other thing is that, again, New Orleans, in New Orleans, this is a city with a history of racism and systemic bias and all sorts of violence um, uh, associated with race. And yet during the New Orleans post-Katrina period, there was this period of time when we were able to work collaboratively across ethnicity and race and income and perspective and ideology and just get down to the business. And I think that this window, though, of where you have this kind of a, a willingness to do this closes. And so the challenge that we're faced, as, as I said, as urbanists and what people like Jay Kidder are pushing, pushing, pushing us to come to terms with is that we have to come to terms and reckon with the exclusionary practices that live on in all of our, the way we were trained, the way that we orient ourselves, the way our communities are designed, and find a way to have a conversation predicated on listening and learning and uh, collaboratively adjusting and discussing and moving forward um, in a new kind of way. Uh, this is my little hashtag, no more excuses. It's hard, uh, but we've got to try to collectively figure this out. Um, this is a slide that got par partially cut off, as you can see, which is um, in New York City, I happened to be there during uh, uh, Hurricane Sandy and the same kind of manifestation happened where we had to, and I was working for a very stodgy, old fashioned kind of urban design organization, but it got thrusted into a place of gathering a whole bunch of diverse voices and mobilizing all hands being on deck. And it was not its traditional role. It was way out of its comfort zone, but it had to, it found its way to being that kind of crucible 
for the kinds of interactions that I'm suggesting are critical. Um, I'm hoping I can get to the next slide. Yes, we can. Um, the, the next piece that I've got after sleeping with your enemies is uh, we have to try some stuff. Now, everybody's trying some stuff. Uh, you know, we all love pilots, urbanists love pilots. Well, we'll try this because it, it minimizes hard. It's often hard to get a big approval for something more ambitious. And so you try a pilot because you can, you can usually get a faster approval. We've had a ton of pilots now. We're one big pilot and the like a global pilot. And the question would be, can we allow ourselves to continue in that spirit of trying things, designing things in modest kinds of ways to see if they work and, and being open to solutions that may be more, um, it may appear more a sort of uh, like a whim or an episodic kind of, I know there are folks on this call that are gonna tell me, no, no, it's gotta be about systems change. But I guess what I would say back is systems change will happen, I believe, if we allow all sorts of experimentation at the local gra grounded level, and then we aggregate that up and eventually we can move to systems change. But you have to make a case for systems change, I believe, based on what you can actually see um, and what people are actually trying. So, and they can be modest. That's the other thing we don't, if we're spending a lot of time thinking we've got to reinvent everything, we can get paralyzed. Whereas, and I think that's a big, big risk through COVID is that people feel um, overwhelmed by the complexity of this. So. This is a, a, a social housing project in uh, Brownsville, Brooklyn, um, adjacent to the most uh, high, most affluent census tract in the country in the U.S. Um, and you know, it it is a it's a challenge that planners and experts have been thinking about forever. You can see it's pretty, um, it's not a very vital street. And yet, you know, if we allow community members to actually engage and say, well, here's what we want to do, then these kinds of gestures can actually actually aggregate up. And it has a whole ripple effect. It allows people to visualize what's possible. It gives people a sense of agency that they can actually contribute to making a change rather than feeling powerless. But it requires people like all of us to be open to the fact that this adage that everybody loves, that perfect is the enemy of the good. We've got to be willing to make some mistakes, right? We've got to be willing to see if it works. And early, early, early in the days of the pandemic, in the, that first weekend in March, I um, uh, sat here in my apartment thinking, hoy, yay, yay, what's gonna happen next? And I met with my staff the next day on Monday uh, at CUI, I was fairly new, they didn't really know what to make of me. And I said, you know, I think we should set up some sharing platforms so that people working on the ground can know what's going on. And, cause I think they're gonna need to know. And some of my colleagues said, no, 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 don't worry. No, no, government will do that. Or, or there are other organizations that will do that. And I just quietly said, they won't have time. They will be overwhelmed. Uh, and I just knew that in my gut. And, you know, so we put up these three platforms. I hope you'll go to them, City Watch Canada, which is a data set, 62 cities across the country. It's not as uh, current now because we don't feel the need to be for it to be. But in these early days, we had hundreds of volunteers across the country. We created the platform. We had volunteers punching it in so that Kamloops could see or Winnipeg could see what Ottawa was doing, the cities, what the municipal governments were doing. And we didn't have a fast way to do that unless somebody was prepared to completely sit on Twitter all day and find out what their colleagues were doing. At the same time that we said, let's track municipal governments, um, we said, there's gonna be a ton of things that will happen out of the community. People are gonna try some stuff. They're gonna figure out how to, there are always people who will find a way to bend a rule, you know? So the library is closed, but you know what? Those librarians went in and they moved their routers to the windows. So the people that were relying on uh, Wi-Fi access from their library could go and sit outside and get the signal. 
People improvise and DIY all the time. And so we created a platform, City Share Canada. Have a look. Whenever you're feeling down about what the heck's going on, just scroll over City Share and you'll be knocked out by the imagination and the really resourcefulness of people on the ground. And then we started this one, City Talk Canada, which we initially started. Um, we were cautious about this because, and I feel cautious about it still, because I didn't want to be distracting from the fact that you've got thousands and thousands of Canadians whose, life, whose days are spent trying to keep people alive. And did we really want to just have chats about it? So we've made it very focused on problem solving, what's working, what's not, what's next. We've had people across the country. And what we hope we're doing is building this sense of connectedness and mutual learning and mutual questioning about how are we going to navigate our way out. So City Talk Canada, also online, uh, lots of chats there. Uh, and I see some people in, the, in this attendance here who, are, who come to City, City Talk and it's uh, posted like these five goody ideas are, it's posted afterwards and you can watch it later. And I think it's important that we don't lose these repositories. That's why on the resources, I put a couple of um, uh, videos, including one from New Orleans Speaks, which is 2008 of local folks, some of which you just saw on that slide I put forward, um, talking about what they had learned in their first three years post Katrina. And it's uh, remarkable to me that 13 years later, how resonant those observations are. And we now need to create vehicles for those kinds of stories so that you're telling your story so that when we go through this again, not it won't be the same, it will be something different. Or when the next round comes and maybe it won't be us in the front lines, it'll be somebody else, that they can draw on the experiences that we've had and the resilience that we've built and the lessons that we've learned. Let's hope that we can incorporate more of the lessons because you'll see when you watch New Orleans Speaks that there are lessons there and you think, well, shit, why didn't we do that? You know. Sometimes it takes a while to actually make the changes. Um, you know, you can all have your own meaning for this. Here's mine. I think we have to be really careful about looking for a grand solution to come from on high somewhere. I think that kind of, I don't want to negate, as I suggested, the advocacy that many of you are doing for rights-based approaches, which is the federal government, or for systemic change having to do with how tax policy is established and all the things that senior levels of government have to implement. But I do think that we have to be careful to not um, take away our own sense of agency and our obligation as urbanists to create enabling conditions for others to have agency and engage in their neighborhood and in their community and in whatever piece, whatever slice of life they have access to that they're empowered and equipped to participate. And I worry sometimes that we can lull ourselves, and part of it is fear and, and, and all sorts of things. But I also worry that we have to just not allow ourselves to think that big daddy or big mommy, however you want to do it, I don't know what the gender neutral term is, somebody will help me um, uh, to figure that out, that we not allow ourselves to get placed into that. So I think I want to leave you with this. There are ways that each of us in your day to day, as you rise every morning, there are ways that you can contribute to your own resilience, the resilience of your household, the resilience of your block, your neighborhood, your street, your district, your city. And we have to build those building blocks by looking at what's working, trying some things to see if we can do something differently, working with people that we're not used to working with, um, seeing if we can somehow um, uh, support their agenda and ours mutually. Um, and it's not either top down or bottom up, it's kind of both, obviously. And we all know that silos are the great impediment to actually making change happen. But as we're seeing through the pandemic, this kind of vertical organization, which Canada has been quite good at, municipal government, the provincial government, federal government, all of that's getting thrown out because we're all 
focusing on a place. We're focusing on the challenge to a local community. And that's going to have impacts on how we resource uh, municipal governance and decision making, how, what, how we empower them, um, how we collectively hold government accountable to the services that we need, and how each of us navigates improving and contributing to the vibrant, livable, resilient places that we, that, we, that we know are possible and why we continue to be attached to living here in a city or a community of whatever size. So I'm gonna just uh, sign off with uh, plugging Ickley's phrase of multi-solving, which comes out of the resilience world, which I so agree with, that we're not gonna do these things with single interventions anymore. So we don't just do an arts grant. We don't just do a social service intervention. We don't just build a sewer. We have to do things that serve multiple outcomes and multiple benefits. That's just good practical husbandry of a place. And it's through understanding, listening, telling, sharing our experience, promoting when we find something that works, supporting others to engage with us, engaging people that are not like us, and then finally creating connective tissue, which is the business that I feel CUI is in. So last thing, never let a good uh, crisis to waste. Everybody said this, including Winston Churchill, but we're in it now, folks. And if we snap back to something that was like before, that'll be just a darn shame. We will have missed. Let's not waste and let's remember to live, love, our local. Thanks very much. That was excellent. Thank you, Mary. Uh, just terrific and lots of, lots of chat in the chat room. And I think you have a solution to your gender neutral big daddy. It's a big parent. It? It's a big parent. It? Oh, the big parent, okay. Yeah. Anyhow, um, and, and what I like about some of the chat, uh, great examples of what's actually happening now in Toronto and, and uh, Kathy Crow shared with us that, you know, the encampment support network, yeah. which has been incredibly active and vocal um, on, on issues of homelessness and encampments and just been at the front lines. And these are just ordinary citizens, um, musicians, artists, and so forth that came together and responded to the need. So very much what you were talking about, um, which is, which I think is really exciting. Um, we have a couple of questions, um, in the, in the Q and A session. One, the, the first question I think was sort of jumped the gun, but said, could you elaborate on why you distrust experts? And I think you actually got to that. Um, I, but, it, it did make me, you know, it, it has twigged for me a couple of things around as we think about all of this work in the not-for-profit sector and the community sector. You know, you've talked about the grassroots and I think um, that, that about the experts, it's about lived experts. It's about people who are living this reality and really paying close attention to what's happening on the ground. And, and we know that not all nonprofits are, are created equally. You know, some of them are really micro, they're on the ground and they've got these great uh, sort of valves and they can hear, they're, it's in their DNA to be really plugged into what's happening in the community. And others have grown up into big institutions. Um, and so I wonder if from a, some of your experience, like how did those bigger players that have the ear of government, that have, you know, sort of other tools at their disposal, how do they step back and, and remember their roots and, and, and ensure that they're open to hearing and, and really being um, accountable to and hearing the community? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we are in Edmonton this week. Um, uh, thanks to the prodding of uh, Elizabeth McIsaac and Alan Broadman, we are doing virtual residencies in cities across the country and CUI is, and we had hoped to be physically in these cities, but we're now doing it virtually. And uh, what's great about that is we get a lot of people coming on. And one of the things that uh, we learned in the session that we had with the tech sector is that, you know, there's a burgeoning emerging tech sector in Edmonton, but it's not as dominant as in other cities. And it doesn't have big dominant players. There's no Shopify in Edmonton. 
So part of what they talked about, though, and I think it's instructive, is that in a tech startup, you can have something that starts with two people that can grow to 20 people, just 20 people, and be world-changing. So I think we have to rethink our notions of scale because, um, and I think this has an implication for larger not-for-profits, as you have grown. So if I think of some of the settlement houses that are large, or um, I'm just looking to see who's on the system here. I mean, there are folks here who are part of established not-for-profits. You know, you need the stability of those, of those players um, because you don't, because they have institutional memory and they often have more capacity to incubate things. But part of the challenge for them is how, and we're seeing this in business life too, you're always trying to organize smaller cells that can take some risks within their parameter. And so I think it's a cultural thing as a not-for-profit leader, are you enabling differentiation within your ranks? You know, if you think of standardization as being one of the great squelchers of innovation, if we all say, no, it's gotta be done this way and that's the way we do it, the downside to that is that someone who's going to try something a little differently and might find it's even more effective gets pushed out. So I think there's good news on both sides here. I think there's good news for the small innovator startup freelancer, free agent, instigator, they come by all sorts of names, who's in there seeing things in a way that someone has maybe in an institutional setting wouldn't see and who can identify, I think there's a new way to do this. The question is, how do you get support to that person? Because if they're just rumbling around, bumping along, they don't have an income, they may not have any, they certainly won't have any benefits and they don't have the kinds of supports to really mature their idea. So I think new arrangements which we're seeing in the civil society not-for-profit sector, charter sector, where we can have uh, fellowships uh, in uh, shorter term engagements, um, new kinds of partnerships, new kinds of arrangements where a larger institution partners with some with a small startup so that you have the benefits of both into the, into the ecosystem so that we appreciate that each of us comes at this very differently. And when you're smaller, um, you can be more nimble you can be more flexible. You don't have the kind of legacy commitments. You probably don't have the legacy grant arrangements. I think that I feel for some of the organizations that are older and have long uh, funding relationships and have to continue to potentially to deliver a service and then realize the service is the wrong service. And then they, I'm sure there are people on the call who will say, yep, been there. How do you, how do you pivot? So I think, I think it's both and, eh, Liz? I don't think it's one or the other. And I also, I would be very sorry if we um, allowed ourselves to think that we want everything to scale up, I'm, that's where I have some reaction to experts and scaling up. I'm interested in the exception. How do you enable things to morph and change um, and that we not be uh, too preoccupied with um, looking for the one single answer, the one definitive answer. And that's partly my pushback on experts. Um, right. Okay. So, so there's another dimension to that as well, which which you and I have spoken a little bit about, and and that's there's um, an equity dimension to the nonprofit sector. So we, we talked about size of organization, and and you've I think you've hit a number of really important points there, but there's also organizations that have been, for example, black led, black focused, black serving, and they haven't had the benefit of of granting dollars and funding dollars, and and they are perennially and structurally uh, hampered from from doing from growing or, or or building on the work that they're doing. And so, this is also an opportunity there because we're experiencing a twin demic, if you will. You know, with the with the yeah. this 
social division and 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 uh, systemic racism um, erupting at the same time and be, in, in concert with with COVID. So um, as those organizations need to stake ground and need to have a voice in some of the, the planning and thinking and creativity, um, is there a role for other nonprofits to sort of make way and 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 um, step back sometimes? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, even this session, you know, you and I are both white women. So it's, you know, already we're a huge disadvantage. Um, and I'm, I would agree with you. And certainly we have to step back, step out. And I think we have to advocate for what those organizations, what they need and what the support they require in a way that, that they're in the driver's seat. They, they will determine what they require and what they need. And so maybe our role as intermediaries is to ensure that, um, that funders and other resource uh, sources of money and sources of funding are putting a priority on equity-seeking, equity-serving groups, um, and and not just de not just defaulting to their usual funding relationships. I think this is a problem in crisis. Uh, and I was because when I was in neurons, I was on the philanthropy side, and I could see philanthropy gravitating, national philanthropy gravitating to the grantees it knew to the domains that it felt it had expertise in, and they were risk averse. You know, they, they were in a very complicated, complex place, and they knew full well that if you fund into New Orleans badly, it will not look good on you. So it was really hard, and it was interesting that the more creative philanthropy as a result, the more risk-taking came out of the smaller family foundations, foundations that were willing to try some things. I don't know if there's a lesson there, but I, I appreciate what you're suggesting that the equity piece, you know, if we don't, if we don't collectively um, navigate this in a much more equitable future way and government and civil society has to lead this, government will try, but it, 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 once it's legis once they, I know there are legislative steps that government needs to take to support what, what people, what people are advocating for, but they won't be able to, to model the organic, collaborative relationships that all of you on the ground can. And that slide I showed you of a whole bunch of different kinds of folks in New Orleans, they, they were in the business of doing resilience. They were doing it. And what I was trying to do is see if I could get government and philanthropy to look and pay attention to how they were doing it. So part of this is about telling the story and we've got a question here. Uh, another huge piece is ensuring that people follow local and not just federal news. So often initiatives made at the grassroots and local levels impact our lives much more substantially than the federal parties. I'm discouraged by the slow demise of local journalism crowding out of our media attention by national newspapers. How can we reinvigorate local journalism to focus on the reforms we're discussing here? Oh, such a good question. Again, when I was in New Orleans 15 years ago, the Times Picayune, the paper there, was the paper that allowed you to know what was really going on. You didn't read the New York Times or the Washington Post. You had to read the Times Pick. And in the 15 years, it's gone from a daily paper, it won a Pulitzer, to being a, a twice a week paper. And so this is the story everywhere, and as your uh, questioner is highlighting. Um, social media is part of it, obviously, uh, but social media has such a toxic component to it, it's hard to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. I am, I am hopeful that out of COVID, because you know you can see Facebook caremongering groups and all the, I know the evils of social media. I share my life with someone who is probably on this session and who is always reminding me of the downsides of social media, but there are some 
upsides. And one of them is that it does allow local groups to actually speak to one another. And so will we find more and more of those kinds of, you know, the old fashioned bulletin board, except now it's got a digital piece. So that's a question. Um, I also, interesting, part of our Edmonton residency, we spent a whole hour yesterday with the head of the community radio station in Edmonton, oldest community radio station in the country from 1896, I think, uh, CQ, CKUA, little shout out to CKUA in Alberta, uh, came out of the University of Alberta, uh, started as an extension program, um, and then uh, has now blossomed into this kind of self-organizing network for the cultural sector to hear one another, to actually hear one another. So maybe we're going to see things like that. What can you initiate? What can we each initiate? That's, I, I don't know if anybody else is picking these things up. We've got these little buying circles now where neighborhoods are saying, hey, here are the 10 stores that I'm going to patronize and I'm doing personal shopping with this one and, or how we're seeing a pushback to uh, delivery services that take those usurious fees, the big global firms that come in. Now we've got small little self-deliverers, you know, 10 restaurants go together. It's happening in Ottawa, it's happening in Edmonton. So I think it's a ripe moment for us. And I, I just worry that I, I don't want us to just be hand-wringing about the end of media. And I know that the mainstream media will spend a lot of time telling us how hard it is for them. It's really hard for them. You can decide if you want to be on that side of the argument or do you want to be on the side of let's create something new. Let's build something new. So it's 144 and a half. Um, we told people we would go to 145, um, but there's a lot of good questions here and I feel like we can get more out of you, Mary. Um, are, are you good to stay on for another 10? 10 yeah, or 15? Well, I'll stay on all afternoon. Well, I got to get back to Edmonton. But <laughs> Until yeah. you get back to Edmonton, you're ours. Okay, so we're going to take another 10 or 15 uh, for people who want to hang on for a little bit longer. Um, there's a question here. City planners can get a bad reputation for planning the wrong way, et cetera. What do you think are some of the new roles of planners within your good ideas picture? It's a great question. You know, people say, people think I'm a planner uh, because of the jobs I've had. And I always have to just fight not saying, well, no, actually, I'm an anti-planner. I'm not trained as a planner. Uh, I think that plan, here's where planners and to all the planners out there, many of whom work at the CU at the Canadian Urban Institute and who many are on this call. We love you planners, we love you. Here's the dilemma. Planners are, can be guilty of terrible hubris. They think they are smarter and they think they know what a community needs. So if we can just take that, take that, and, and lots of us are planners, think, behave as planners, even though we're not trained as planners. So it's back to this notion of, let's think about trimming the experts and listening to the locals. And planners as enablers, planners having really good technical skills and capacity to analyze data, bringing those resources to bear with communities to encourage community-based planning, community-based initiatives, and how communities can can determine um, things in quite different ways than a planner might expect. So planners to be more open to being surprised by communities. Here's a term I love from planning, which I learned from my planning colleagues, desire paths. Planners, architects, landscape designers say, let's make a park. Here's where the walkway will be. They design it, they get some input, they design it, they get it built. The thing is up and six months later, somebody goes and looks at the site and realizes nobody is walking down that nice path. They're actually walking this way across the grass. They created their own desire path. I think we need the cities now across the world in Canada are, we're on a big uh, venture to create our desire paths for the cities we really need. 
And planners can be fabulous enablers, facilitators, and listeners to that, and collators. And so get yourself on that edge of the curve. Stop telling, start listening. So let's talk about the suburbs. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about downtown core, and you and I are both city center people, and we kind of, that all kind of makes sense. But how do suburbs move to become more like their urban downtown neighborhoods with greater connectivity and main streetness? Don't ask them to be more like their urban neighborhoods, though, Liz. It's the wrong question. What we it's want not my question. <laughs> what we want, what we, what, I, what I want to encourage are people that choose to live in suburbs to identify what are the amenities they need in those suburbs. And we're seeing, back when I said we created Bring Back Main Street, we were very careful to say no Main Street looks the same. And so if the Pacific Mall in Markham is your main street, if that's where you go, then that's what your main street looks like. I think the challenges to suburbs are going to be increased climate change implications of being car dependent, um, more pressure on land use and resources that are more going to become more expensive. And so as much as sub, we need to be in, uh, we're doing an interesting project through Bring Back Main Street with the city of Brampton. And Brampton is looking at ways to connect its old historic downtown Main Street with, a, with an old mall um, in, in its uptown district uh, called Shoppers World. And can they create new forms of connective tissue and support local businesses? Because in those suburban environments, Liz, that lots of downtowners are disdainful of, there's actually remarkable quirky little things going on up there, right? People are doing stuff in garages. They're doing stuff in the back half of the mall. They're figuring out other ways to kind of stitch together. They're doing different kinds of approaches to public space. So I think what we need to be doing is creating enabling conditions and allowing local communities to own their own challenge. And, their own, and, and part of this at the systemic level is there need to be implications for the choices we make. And they're increasingly going to be because of carbon pricing and things. So the challenge on sub suburban communities is going to be how to intensify themselves, get the amenities. You can see it right now. People do not want to have to be dependent on getting some, a long way. Much easier and safer if they can walk places. So I think we're already seeing this in suburban communities across the country. And they're going to remake themselves to look like something you and I probably haven't even imagined yet. Great. Terrific. Now, this is a, a hyper-specific example, and I'm going to just generalize it a little bit, but they're looking for recommendations and for, in particular, the Mount Dennis community. So for those not from Toronto, this is a high-needs neighborhood uh, in the city where there's all kinds of development happening and transit hubs being planned. Um, do you have recommendations for the consultants and the city planners who are planning the land use framework? During COVID, community engagement in a high needs neighborhood doesn't work well online. Development interests have the upper hand in discussions and, and stimulating the recovery. Um, it's designated as a mobility, a hub, all kinds of stuff. How do they do this? They may not like this answer, but they might have to slow down. That's the first thing. They might have to slow down. The second thing would be, can they use informal networks more effectively? Because even though traditional consultation, which I'm often saddened by this, I see some of my older colleagues like Happy Crow and Diane Dyson, people on this call. Honestly, ladies and gentlemen, we're still doing public meetings the way we were doing it when Diane and Carol and I were, and uh, Kathy and I were early in our career. We're still putting boards up in church halls and wandering in. I can't believe that the discipline, with all due respect to the Nicole Swearens and the Jane Farrows and all the experts out there, I can't believe that we haven't moved to a different way. So. Maybe we go back to a really old way, which is that we find in for those folks working on that project, 
if they can identify community leaders or community ambassadors who are in communities, through faith communities, through service groups, other ways that we know people are actually those care mongering um, uh, informal networks and see if those people can be the conduit, the deliverer, the engager, as opposed to these centralized processes where an engineer gets up and throws a PowerPoint up. Maybe this is really good for us mm -hmm. because it's going to push us into a whole different understanding of how we gather data, how we gather input and ideas. And maybe we go back to an old traditional way of talking and listening to community leaders who have their own channels, probably using the phone uh, or other kinds of mechanisms that they're tapped in. You, we all know if you go to any community, you, you can find who's the person who's got their finger on the pulse or who are the people, there's maybe eight or 10 people. How do we tap into those people, not co-opt them, not um, take advantage of them. In fact, you may wanna compensate them for their time, um, but that they can be the proxy engagers and that we just start to build up. That's my aggregating up notion, we aggregate up. Terrific. You had a great slide with all the silos, uh, the vertical silos. And so someone is asking if we wanna work horizontally across those silos, what are the pillars that go across? How do we use those levers? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, place-based economic development is doing this for us because you can't say, oh, gee, the boundary of Hamilton stops here and Burlington starts there. Like, it's crazy. Regional, I think regional approaches to how we're understanding economic development is a lever. How do we, I think, and that doesn't mean you have to have regional government. There are different ways that we can create informal mechanisms. In fact, I would say, again, I had this formative 15 years in the U.S. and I saw um, the extent to which people just cobbled it together. They did, that's back to the big daddy thing. They didn't wait for permission. They just start, and they didn't worry too much about whether they had jurisdiction or not. They just started to figure out who were the players that they could partner with, who, who would come and dance with them. And so I think part of the connective tissue is place-based where we share a common challenge and where everybody agrees. That's the one great thing about COVID. There's nobody, you can, I can get a return phone call. I'm going to say this now, nobody will return my call today. But, you know, I can get a return phone call, as I'm sure you can, Liz, and others here can, from almost anybody right now, because nobody really has the answer. We're all trying to figure it out. So let's not lose that moment to then create these new forms of informal. And then there will be levers. There are going to be levers around um, accountability on public funding because we're going to be in a tough public funding situation for the next several years and governments are going to be under enormous pressure to make sure their dollars are being spent as wisely and prudently as possible and so lots of us are going to argue push more money to the local have it pass through fewer hands so that you can actually have money dispersed as close to the recipient by the level of government as close to the recipient so i think those levers that those moments are going to be ahead of us those negotiations are going to be ahead of us but we have evidence and we have tangible, visible results on our side of how communities will change. So um, I think we have time for one or two more. This one comes back to the nonprofit sector. And, and the question is, how can we integrate all the nonprofits, the work that's happening to maximize everyone's expertise to the benefit of all? There's lots of individuals and organizations, but sometimes there's a disconnect. Are there, I mean, you talked about the connective tissue across cities. Is there, is there more that perhaps it can be done around the connective tissue among uh, civil society in a location? Yeah. Well, you know, this notion of a fractal, you know, self-organization is really about making these connections in those scales. So you've got it at your neighborhood, then you have it at your, you know, your district and everything. And I think the same is true for your sector. So 
here we are doing citysharecanada.ca, which is about highlighting expertise and smart things and, sorry, not expertise, well, community expertise, experimentation and good things that are happening in communities. There's no reason for us not to replicate those platforms and create those kinds of resource, you know, problem solving, solution finding resources at the local level. In fact, I think that would be fantastic. You know, I'd love to see us come out of this. Somebody's talked about evidence and data. Um, this was a huge challenge after Katrina. The, 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 to try to make the case that, the, that people in New Orleans actually knew who was getting mail. They knew who, they actually knew where the postal services were, were functioning as opposed to Washington DC deciding who's getting mail and who isn't. And that, that's how trivial it was guys. That's how granular it was. Now we're gonna be in that situation again. And we're gonna be, it's gonna be incumbent on us be able to collect data at the most local level. So those of you, here's a term to remember, cognitive surplus. All of us have, I don't, but lots of people my age have kids or grandchildren who know how to write code at two in the morning and they can create something overnight that when I was at university would have taken a huge mainframe six weeks to do. So we need to figure out what kinds of tools can each of us start to create and don't worry about duplicating, just try one. What kinds of data gathering tools can we start to create in our organization, in our block, in our, in our, uh, in our network to collect real-time data that starts to illustrate what's working? Where are the gaps and what's working? That's what we tried to do with City Watch and City Talk, sorry, City Share. And I'm sure that others of you can do that and put that up and then we'll make this collective case about why the local is so informative and instructive and how policy needs to change to better resource it. Excellent. I'm going to give the last question. We've got three minutes, two minutes uh, to Diane Dyson. Haven't we tried place-based approaches before to multi-solve? Somehow I failed. How can we do it better this time? All right, Diane. <laughs> you got up your medication because you did not fail, Diane Dyson. You are a fabulous illustration, as is Woodgreen, of all the ways in which historic settlement centers, different kinds of neighborhood centers have but they're so instructive. The best one that I'm familiar with is the Houston Neighborhood Centers model in, the, in Houston, obviously, settlement houses. And so I'm not sure that I'm ready to give up on place-based. I'm really not sure. I can appreciate that someone like you who spent your career there and then think, you know, are now attracted to, can you move to systems change, which is appropriate. But that doesn't mean that we give up on understanding that the best solutions we're going to find and the best diagnostic we'll find for what's actually going on is coming from somebody embedded in the place. And I guess I, I don't disagree with you because I'm tired too. We've been having Alan Robin, I'm sure would say, he's been having this conversation for 30 years about inverting the triangle and getting more resources and decision-making at the local level. But I wonder if there are just a whole bunch of other conditions like a global pandemic that may in fact tip the scale and where I'm seeing, hopefully I am seeing, um, more appetite for effective, place-based solutions, both coming out of rural and coming out of urban and coming out of other levels of government. It's a good principle of subsidiarity. So I'm not ready to give up, Diane. I'm still, I, st I, hear, I hear your anxiety about it, but I still think um, we're, there's too much of it now too. That's the other thing. There's so many more people doing it because Canada is bigger. You know, it's, a, it's more people and they will continue to get more people and more people will do these things. So with that, I'm going to say thank you. That was a great way to end. 
motivating everybody on the line. A terrific conversation. For those of you who have been chatting actively on the side, thank you. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your hour in the middle of the day and tuning into another Zoom call. Um, we will also try to, I think, download all this chat so we can take another look at it. And thank you, Mary. That was just uh, so great. I'm motivated. Ideas are buzzing and we've got great stuff to take away and, and try to apply to the work that we're doing. Thank you for listening to Five Good Ideas with Mary Rowe. We link to the Five Good Ideas resources and a full transcript of the session in our show notes. You can find all of our Five Good Ideas sessions from past seasons on the Maytree website at maytree.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And you can subscribe to the Five Good Ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time.